The History Channel Original Podcast. Sports History This Week. December 26, 1993. I'm Kalen Jones. It's zero degrees in Green Bay, Wisconsin, but the 11 mile per hour wind makes it feel like it's minus 22. Over 54,000 Packers fans wearing green and yellow parkas, scarves, and hats are on their feet, each breath sharply visible in the bitter December air. Running back Napoleon McCollum of the visiting LA Raiders can't even take his hands away from the heaters on the sidelines for more than two minutes, or he says he'll freeze. The 93 game with the Raiders was like one of the coldest in NFL history. It's still in the top 10. But the Packers fans, they don't care. They live for this sort of game. Especially when their team, 8-6 and six on the year, just needs one more win to clinch a playoff spot for the first time in over a decade. Now they chase him out of the pocket. It's a screen. And he sets a screen up and it's knocked out of the 38-yard Raiders backup quarterback Vince Evans is trying to mount a furious comeback with his team down 14 to nothing at the start of the fourth quarter. Evans completes a short pass to running back Randy Jordan, who was immediately pummeled by Packers safety Leroy Butler. And a fumble! Tackle, do the Packers have the ball? Apparently they do! The fumble is recovered by Packers legend Reggie White, who laterals the ball to a streaking Butler. And Butler does the rest himself. Butler keeps on going, though, through the end zone, leaping into the air and hoisting himself over the green padded wall. He's hugged, patted, and celebrated by the half dozen elated Packers fans within arm's reach. Just out of nowhere, we see him just jump into the stands. You know, you were kind of in awe a little bit because, you know, no one has actually done that before. People in the stadium may not realize it yet, but they've just witnessed history. The very first Lambeau Leap. Butler has spontaneously created one of the world's most iconic celebrations from any sport. He didn't do it for PR reasons. He just did it because he was excited. But it ended up being something that made him really, really famous. To many, this moment marks a major turning point for the franchise. The fact that a player would voluntarily celebrate with the fans, the same fans who booed and even boycotted their way through the previous 20-plus years, they're kind of a gem to the league now, but in the 70s and 80s, they sure weren't. It's what makes the Packers the greatest story in sports, in my opinion. Today, we take a look at one of the NFL's most successful franchises, the Green Bay Packers. How, after unprecedented success in the 1960s, did this team become the league's laughingstock? And how did the Lambeau Leap mark the dawn of a new era for the Green Bay Packers? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
The Green Bay Packers are founded in 1919, competing against other semi-professional teams around Wisconsin for two years, before being asked to join up with the big boys, the American Professional Football Association, which is filled with teams from major cities like Chicago, Washington, D.C., New York, Louisville, and Green Bay? It was the sixth largest city in Wisconsin. Oshkosh was bigger, Superior was bigger. Cliff Crystal is the team historian for the Green Bay Packers and author of The Greatest Story in Sports, a four-volume history of the Packers franchise. It was the second smallest city out of 21 franchises. The only smallest city was Tonawanda, New York. The Tonawanda Cardex last one game in the NFL. Packers have now played more than a thousand. It can be tough for a small town to compete against major cities. But what Green Bay lacks in size, it makes up for in other attractions. This was a city that ignored the 18th Amendment when prohibition went into effect. According to the Brown County Historical Society, Green Bay becomes a place football teams are, quote, excited to travel to because of their refusal to enforce the national ban on alcohol in the so-called houses of ill repute frequented by flappers. And on the field, the team is a massive success, led by head coach Earl Curley Lambeau. The Packers win six titles in a 15-year span from 1929 to 1944, earning the nickname in what is now known as Title Town USA. And yet, the team struggles financially. In fact, their home stadium doesn't even have a locker room for the visiting team. Almost all visiting teams and would dress at the hotel and players would carry their cleats down to the buses and it would take them a mile over the old city stadium. The Packers offset some of their money troubles by selling stock in the team. Local attorney John Kittle promised Lambeau and others that they would make every effort to turn it into a community property and stock was sold $5 a share, but you also got a season ticket. Green Bay Football Corporation was created in 1923. And that really is a point in time when the Packers became owned by their fans. The Packers continue selling stock throughout the years, particularly during hard times. They had another stock sale in the 30s when a guy fell on the stands and sued the team. Pete Doherty has been covering the Packers for the Green Bay Press-Gazette as a reporter and columnist since 1993. They were on the brink of going out of business then. So it was just a way to keep the team alive. They just went around, went to all the businesses in town and to individuals, and they sold enough stock to raise enough money so that they had a, a war chest to keep the team going for a while. Well, their third stock sale in 1950s, that's when they went banging on doors and sold the stock to Joe Fan. Despite these public investments, the Packers are barely able to survive, especially after the departure of Lambeau in 1949. The Packers stumbled through a rocky decade, bottoming out in 1958 when Green Bay wins only one game. The Packers were perpetually on their deathbed from the day they were founded in 1919. That is, until the arrival of one of the NFL's most famous names. A name so big, the NFL's biggest prize, the Super Bowl trophy, is still named after him today. The Vince Lombardi trophy is coming home where it started. You can even argue that until the day Vince Lombardi arrived, they were at risk of folding. They were a losing franchise barely surviving. Lombardi changes all of that, overhauling the team culture with his unique leadership style. 
Lombardi could turn those players' emotions around instantly. He had just a special knack for that. His teams almost always went into games confident. Here's Lombardi pumping up his team before the very first Super Bowl. I want you to be proud of your profession. It's a great profession. You'd be proud of this game, and you can do a great deal for football today. Great deal for all the players in the league and everything else. Go out there and play this ball game like I know you can play it. This pitch was, you are the greatest team in the National Football League. Nobody should beat you. Lombardi gets results, making Green Bay once again worthy of the nickname Title Town USA. The greatest dynasty, five championships in seven years in the 60s. No coach in the history of the NFL has won five in a decade, including Bill Walsh, Bill Belichick, anybody you want to name. Off the field, as the civil rights movement gains momentum, Lombardi also goes out of his way to make the Packers a destination for black players, saying, quote, you can't play for me if you have any kind of prejudice. Vince Lombardi brought true integration to the NFL. The key to that team's success was that Lombardi had no quotas when a lot of other teams did. Packers were the envy of the NFL. It was the one place along in sports with the Celtics where Bill Russell was coaching, where black players wanted to be. Lombardi's last two championships are actually the very first Super Bowls in which the Packers are led by quarterback Bart Starr. A magnificent performance earns Bart Starr the game's most valuable player award. Star proves again why he is the best quarterback in football. If Green Bay is the bell of the ball, then Lombardi's departure in 1969 is the equivalent of Cinderella hitting midnight. They were the dominant team in the league to be on the doormats from 68 through 91, basically. I mean, how does that happen? How does a team go from being so great to so bad basically overnight? If you want to simplify it, bad coaches, bad GMs. Terrible personnel decisions. First up on the coach's carousel, Phil Bengtsson, the architect of Lombardi's championship defenses. Bengtsson lasts only three seasons, never once making the playoffs. He is quickly replaced by Dan Devine, who is coming off a successful 12-year campaign as the coach at the University of Missouri. Devine does lead the Packers to the playoffs in 1972, but... Most players on that team will tell you they won in spite of him. He'd go up to the chalkboard and diagram a play and have 12 players on one of the teams. Either 12 X's or 12 O's against 11. Things get so bad by 1974 that Packers players actually plan a mutiny. There was concern among team officials that the players were not going to show up in the field in Atlanta in the final game to force them to get ready to buy it. It was almost unreal how much the players hated Devine. They had absolutely no respect for him whatsoever. So ahead of the 1975 season, the Packers bring in a new coach that would be impossible not to respect. Two-time Super Bowl MVP, Bart Starr. You think they were stuck as a franchise in trying to recapture the glory days? Yeah, I think they probably were. At first, there was a lot of hope that this guy who was the leader of the team in the 60s that he would turn him around, but he wasn't ready for it. And they gave him too much power. He was both the coach and the general manager. And what actually did him in was his GM work. And the Packers should have known this was a bad idea. After all, Vince Lombardi, one of the greatest coaches in NFL history, has already warned them. He said the job coach and GM had become too big for one man. For some reason, the executive committee ignored his appraisal of the situation and continued to hire people with absolutely no experience in the NFL. 
when the draft had come around, he'd listen to the coaches and not the scouts, even though the scouts had done all the legwork, and that just killed him in drafts. Over eight seasons as head coach, Starr wins less than 40% of his games. The Packers know they need a change. But firing Bart Starr, a Packers icon, is no easy thing. He still had his loyal supporters, but at the same time, there were a lot of people that wanted to see him go. He had beer spilled over him after a disastrous preseason loss, Denver, 38 to nothing. One of the Broncos said it's the worst football team he had ever seen. In 1983, Starr is given the boot. A huge majority thought it was past time. Uh, he's one of the most beloved figures in franchise history because of what he did on the field. They stuck with Star for extra long because of that. I think fans just decided to forget about his reign as coach, and they cherish more what he did as a player. With Star gone, the Packers head into the 1984 season with a clean slate, determined not to repeat the mistakes of the past. Except, that's pretty much what they do. Their next coach was Forrest Gregg, who was one of the great players on those teams, too. They reached back to the 60s to try to do it, and that didn't help at all. Back in the 60s, Forrest Gregg was an offensive tackle in charge of protecting Bart Starr. But as a coach... Gregg had no sensitivity. Barty could tear into a player, and, and then by Friday, he placed a big priority on making sure his team was confident of victory by Sunday. Greg came in and he beat his team down like Lombardi, but he had no sensitivity to how to build them up and make them confident. The team is floundering, and all of the goodwill they built up in the 60s as one of the best free agent destinations? That had completely reversed itself by the late 1980s. One of the black players were unhappy playing there, didn't want to play for the Packers. Uh, some of them let it be known before the draft. Some of the top prospects, Deion Sanders was an example. Only about 500 of the 185,000 citizens of Green Bay at the time are black, and reports describe players as feeling uncomfortable simply walking down the street. It was the old saying when guys went to their teams, complaining about their contract, threatened to ship them off to Green Bay. You know, it was basically like uh, sending them to Siberia. The Milwaukee Sentinel publishes a cartoon where the ghost of Vince Lombardi curses the team from beyond the grave. Yeah, they were pathetic. It was incompetence at the utmost level that resulted in that long 24-year famine. Frank DeFord writes a column for Sports Illustrated in 1987 encouraging the people of Green Bay to sell their, quote, lousy franchise and use the money to help the local university football and basketball programs. There was no guarantee that this franchise was going to make it through the 90s if that losing had continued for another, you know, five years or so. But help is on the way, in the form of a major shakeup, in the front office and on the field. The whole atmosphere in the organization changed almost overnight. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
The Green Bay Packers are nearing the end of a second consecutive losing decade. It's 1989, and the Packers need something good to happen. The joke in Green Bay in the late 80s was my wife or my husband went to the mall and left his Packer tickets on the dashboard of his car. And when they came out, there were two more there. Enter Bob Harlan. When Bob Harlan took over, he changed everything. Harlan is something of a sports lifer. He joined the Packers organization 18 years earlier, working his way up to assistant general manager at just 35 years old. He had a good feel for the city and the state, because he had worked for the Packers since the early 70s. He put winning as just the highest priority, and he was willing to do what it took. Bob Harlan, now team president, brings on Ron Wolf as the GM. He was the head scout for the Los Angeles Raiders, who had won two Super Bowls in the 80s. The Packers actually tried to hire him four years earlier, but... He turned it down because they wouldn't give him full reign over the football side of things. The team is trying to avoid a repeat of the disastrous Bart Starr era, when one man wielded too much power. But these Packers are desperate. We realized that if he didn't do something drastic, he would be a victim of the, the same inertia or whatever it was that was dragging down the franchise. Harlan gives Wolf his blessing. The team is yours to do with what you want. Bob Harlan made an offer that Wolf couldn't refuse. He had the power to hire and fire the coach to choose whatever players he wanted. Wolf completely remade the roster. From there, the dominoes begin to fall Green Bay's way. Just a couple weeks after they hired Holmgren. He's referring to Mike Holmgren, an offensive coach for the Super Bowl-winning San Francisco 49ers in the late 80s. It was kind of a coup that he got him. Holmgren had talked to people and he thought the Packers were kind of a sleeping giant with the, with the way they were set up and how everything was all football. As head coach, Holmgren knows that this is a team that cannot afford to dwell in the past, as he tells Rich Eisen years later. I walked into the lobby, the old lobby there, and they had a collage of Bart Starr and Coach Lombardi. And then when I got the job, I kind of knew that I couldn't be Coach Lombardi. I think it's very important to be your own person. And Holmgren's impact on the team and culture is immediate. I remember the, going to practice, first day, first week, and thinking, oh my gosh, I've been covering this team for 20-some years, and what a drastic change. I mean, this is a professional operation. Wolf upgrades the quarterback position, trading away a future first-round pick to nab a young quarterback who spent his rookie season on the bench for the Atlanta Falcons. You might have heard of him. They went and traded for Brett Favre, who Wolf had rated as the best player in the 91 draft. The team also makes some outstanding draft picks, including receiver Sterling Sharp and safety Leroy Butler. But the icing on the cake is the man who some say becomes the greatest defensive player in Green Bay history, defensive end Reggie White. Him joining the Packers is the ultimate sign that they've officially shaken off their reputation as free agent Siberia. Oh my gosh, they've signed the most coveted free agent in the history of football. One word was that the Packers were going after him. I know I felt this way, and people, I'm sure, across the league were like, there's no way. They're dreaming. Now they just pulled out all stops, and he signed up with them. And he, having him come via free agency, so by his choice to Green Bay, sent a message to the players around the league, hey, if it's Green Bay is good enough for Reggie White, it's good enough for me. You can't overstate how important that was. Bringing in White is a major boost to an already solid Packers team, but it's an even bigger shot in the arm for the long-suffering fans. 
The fans just absolutely loved him. I remember coming out, I'm walking through, Reggie White's walking right in front of me and fans are gathered all around and this little girl who couldn't have been more than about four or five years old goes, Reggie White, and her arms open up and she walked up and hugged his leg. He's, you know, <laughs> and he keeps walking, carrying this girl on her. And it, that was like the perfect encapsulation of how beloved a guy he was for the fans amongst here. And that brings us to December 26th, 1993. The 8-6 Packers are coming off a tough loss to the Minnesota Vikings, but all they need is a win against the LA Raiders to clinch their first playoff spot in what feels like ages. It has been long overdue since 1973. Every NFL team has reached the playoffs except the Packers. This excludes the strike season. Green Bay is able to hang on and get some help today. They will be in. And they'll have to do it in weather conditions that ESPN's Chris Berman will later describe as On a day better suited for the defense of Stalingrad. The third coldest day in Packer history, 22 below the wind chill. When they talk about the frozen tundra, it really was frozen that day. That's Edgar Bennett, former running back for the Packers and currently a coach for the Las Vegas Raiders. We couldn't wear seven studs, so we had to wear these rubber bottom shoes, you know, just to just to be able to have some sort of footing on the field. Bennett opens the scoring in this game with a one-yard touchdown run in the second quarter. Favre tacks on another seven points with a touchdown pass to Sterling Sharp in the third. But the real story of the day is the Packers' defense, led by who else? Reggie White. Reggie White has been everywhere today. Well, now he's up to 12.5 sacks on the season with his two todays. The way he's going right now, he's hot now. And uh, I refer to him as Big Dog. He's the only Big Dog, the one and only. But it's not just White who makes this a nightmare day for the Raiders' offense. Linebacker Tony Bennett knocks Raiders QB Jeff Hostetler out of the game with a massive hit. Hostetler's backup, Vince Evans, is left with an uphill climb, his team down 14 to nothing to start the fourth quarter. Evans drops back the pass and completes a short screen to running back Randy Jordan. They don't know it at the time, but this will become one of the most iconic plays in the Packers' 100-year history. Big Dog recovers the fumble and realizes uh, I might need to let him I'm not going to score. White is an incredible defensive lineman, but at 6'5 and almost 300 pounds, he is not the fastest guy on the field. But that's not going to keep the Packers from scoring. As White is being dragged out of bounds by Raiders lineman Steve Wisniewski, his teammate Butler scrambles to his feet. He times his run perfectly and catches the ball from White. What? A play by Reggie White, the presence of mind to lateral it back to Butler. And Leroy being Leroy, I mean, one of the one of the phenomenal athletes of all times. He just takes off and all of a sudden, it was almost like he was signaling to the fans, get ready, up and up, up, I'm coming. Get the uh, 28, Butler gets the touchdown. Leroy Butler leaps into the stands, and the Lambo leap is born. It was phenomenal. Really, it's one of the iconic moments in franchise history that's had a lot of them. First Lambo leap showcased this newfound connection between players and their fans. It was genuine. It was spontaneous. And so when Leroy did that, 
did other teammates and other players immediately start doing it or did it take a while for it to catch on? Following Leroy, other guys tried it. You know, we had our fun with it. It was a great way to just celebrate with the fans because they play such an important role in that in that town, that city. It was like you're having a party up there with the fans after scoring a touchdown. Though other Packers begin to emulate Butler's new celebration, there's actually no newspaper record of the nickname Lambo Leap being used until an Associated Press story a full two years later in December of 1995. But the article does include a pretty funny guide on proper Lambo leaping. Quote, the hero gets to a running start like a high jumper. He has to be careful to avoid the ice near the base of the wall, lest he slip and look foolish. Possibly the best leaper of all is Packers wide receiver Robert Brooks, who scores 13 touchdowns in 1995 and makes the Lambo leap his signature. He took it to the next the next level. He came out with a rap song, a video, and then just took off. Every time I score, I'm going to give me a hug from a Packer fan. The best in the land. I'm going to never stop jumping in the stands. My man can make you Even players from other teams give it a try. Somebody who's scored a touchdown against the Packers will jump in the stands. He'll try to find a pocket of fans wearing their team's gear instead of Packers fans. But as popular as it is, not everyone can pull it off. Butler even jokes that he wants to see his 325-pound teammate Gilbert Brown give it a go, even if he ends up killing seven people in the process. You got to have a vertical now. You just can't, you know, you got to time it out because most guys, they'll, they'll miss on the timing. Accuracy. Come on, one more try. There we go. Get him up. Get him up. The leap becomes a bonding exercise during film sessions. Coach Holbrum, he would have like a highlight the following week after we would win. I don't know if you're familiar with the Three Stooges, but you'll see guys laughing because someone smacked into the wall. A new Packers era and a new Packers attitude from the top of the organization to the bottom. Gradually, they just kept getting better and better and better. It was a, it was a very sequential rise to becoming the best team in the league. and. 96, 97, right in there, they were, the, they were the best team. They took a step every year. That was Wolves' whole thing was, it was championship or bust. Capped off by, finally, a Super Bowl win. Their first in almost 30 years. The Vince Lombardi Trophy is coming home where it started. Thanks for listening to Sports History This Week. For moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. Other notable sports stories that happened this week? 1965. The day after winning the Orange Bowl for Alabama, Broadway Joe Namath signs a contract with the New York Jets, worth $427,000 over three years, the highest payday for any football player in history at the time. And 2000. Mario Lemieux makes his return to the ice for the Pittsburgh Penguins after missing nearly four years with Hodgkin's disease. Lemieux scores a goal and adds two assists as the Penguins beat the Toronto Maple Leafs 5-0. If you'd like to get in touch, please shoot us an email at sportspod at history.com or leave us a voicemail at 212-351-0410. We'd love to hear from you. Special thanks to our guests. Edgar Bennett, former Packers running back and current coach for the Las Vegas Raiders. Pete Doherty, columnist for the Green Bay Press-Gazette. And Cliff Crystal, 
team historian for the Green Bay Packers and author of the four-volume book series, The Greatest Story in Sport, Green Bay Packers, 1919-2019. This episode was produced by David Ingber. It was story edited by me, Kaylin Jones, and sound designed by the Poglomerate. Sports History This Week is also produced by Cooper McKim. Our senior producer is Ben Dickstein. Our associate producers are Emma Fredericks and Hazel May. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn, and our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Sports History This Week wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you next week.